the small upstate township where Melissa and I have a house in the woods hosts a 4th of July celebration in the old historic theater on Main Street. The main event is the reading of the Declaration of Independence by several prominent townspeople, followed by a local brass ensemble and general good fun with lots of kids. Sheer, I got to thinking about all about that famous sentence that states, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I wrote about this in a recent Faith Matters post. Do you believe you have an unalienable right to happiness? That's the question that comes to mind. Thomas Jefferson's first draft said, We hold these truths to be sacred. Benjamin Franklin edited out the word sacred and wrote in self-evident because Franklin believed the reasonable self-evident nature of these truths were the basis of our founding, lest the government seem to derive its political legitimacy from religion per se. The tension implied in that small edit concerning the basis of political authority dogged the founding of our nation and remains to the present day. But whether sacred or self-evident, do you believe you have an unalienable right to happiness? I think that's the way the phrase has insinuated itself into our consciousness. Notice I dropped a few words. I said a right to happiness as opposed to a right to the pursuit of happiness. Somewhat different things, really. The former suggests a universal human entitlement, the latter a universal human goal. I think we like the shorter version best. We have a right to happiness. This has become something of a modern proverb, I think, with a seeming biblical imprimatur, not unlike the phrase, God helps those who help themselves. When told that's not in the Bible, some are inclined to respond, well, it ought to be. And, of course, one of the reasons we gather on Sundays is to set the record straight, to listen for the truth that's larger than our version so that our version can more nearly conform to what is, in fact, true. Checking historical sources for the exact wording of the Declaration, I noted a bit of revisionist history. One source reads... The signers of the Declaration believed it was obvious that all men are created equal and have rights that cannot be taken away from them. By all men, the signers meant people of every race and both sexes. And, of course, that is false. That is not true. You'll remember that even though the Declaration preceded the Constitution, the Constitution did not guarantee the so-called 
equal, self-evident, and unalienable rights of African Americans and women. Take the Civil War, Emancipation Proclamation, the 13th Amendment, the 14th Amendment, women's suffrage, and the Civil Rights Movement to advance. The aftershocks of those revolutions continue to the present moment. And the issue of happiness, that also continues to evolve to the present moment, I think. Whether entitlement or goal, would you say that happiness is the largest outcome you desire for your life? And you might respond by saying, well, Steve, that depends upon what we mean by happiness, doesn't it? And we could begin to parse the words several meanings. That would be useful because if we think we do have a right to it, a right that's immutable and unalienable, it's important to know just what sort of thing we're talking about. Recall the well-beloved words earlier in Matthew's Gospel known as the Beatitudes. Do you remember them? Blessed are the poor in spirit, and so on. They're sometimes referred to as the Blesseds. In order to make them more accessible, one modern translation presents them this way. Happy are the spiritually poor. Happy are those who mourn. Happy are those who are humble and those whose greatest desire is to do what God requires. Happy, happy, happy. Happy are those who are persecuted because they do what God requires. Evidently, the translators chose happy since we have little appreciation of what it means to be blessed. Yet these blessed conditions are very different from what passes for happiness today. They have nothing to do with material desires, for instance. Within popular culture, doesn't happiness equate with having stuff and things accompanying a relatively carefree life? Ever onward, upward mobility, graced with good love and good food, good times and good health. The idea that life owes us a mixture of well-sated desires, that this is the true goal of life, is an idea that dies very hard. Pastoral experience reveals this as one of the fundamental dilemmas for American Christians. The blending of quasi-religious political platitudes in a cultural soup serving up a narcissistic spirituality which leads to an expectation that God is there primarily to deliver the goods to people who are pursuing their happiness. And the word people here can denote a privileged group boundaried by hard borders and miserly visa quotas lest the real humble, poor, and mournful, compete for seemingly scarce happiness resources. And as for that, wasn't it interesting to hear from Deuteronomy that, by the way, that passage comes right after Moses receiving the Ten Commandments in one of the tellings of that story. 
one aspect of God's justice right after, I want to remind you, giving the Ten Commandments pertains to how well we receive whom? The foreigner. In other words, the quality of our hospitality, our willingness to share what we have with those who suffer privation. A minister recounts a story about a pious woman in a prayer group in her church that prayed for her to get a set of color-coordinated kitchen appliances. And eventually the appliances arrived at the member's home through the economy of an easy payment plan over an extended period of time, affirming to the group the efficacy of their deep trust in God. Our pervasive assumptions about desire and happiness dog all of us in a culture of extraordinary affluence for some, but desired by all. And it dogs religion. And this dog has a voracious appetite. Which isn't to say that good appliances are a bad thing. I recommend them. I like good appliances. But along with all other material conditions we strive for, they cannot substitute for the sort of happiness of which Jesus seems to speak, as obvious as that statement may seem. And you know the drill on this. You know from your own unique point of view about the anxieties the worries, the jealousies, the envies, the backbiting, the betrayals, the crushing disappointments, all in the pursuit of some very earthbound happiness. But here's the truth. Our religion is based upon a terribly unsuccessful man, at least from the world's point of view. I mean, the man emblazoned in our mosaics is there because, paradoxically, the world thought him a traitor and a grave threat, judged him guilty, and sentenced him to a gruesome death. We might well ask, well, what does happiness have to do with it? And, given our puny definitions, we'd have to say, well, very little. Now, you know I want to be reasonably successful. I have wanted to over the course of my career. I have the opinion that success will bring me some small-scale happiness. And within certain limits, there might be some truth to that. But you know, friends, when I plumb the depths of Jesus' story, I'm more than just a little perplexed by what success might look like if I really follow his lead. Certainly, if we're coming to church to learn how to acquire our personal equivalent of color-coordinate appliances, we're missing the point. That's a very important statement to say in American churches today.
And don't dismiss this because you have all of the appliances you need. Think about every other possible thing you believe you need, must have, in order to live fully, completely, happily, as a whole person, freely pursuing your so-called happiness. That's where the rubber meets the road for us. And then consider how this pursuit becomes an enormous burden given our tendency to make secondary ends our primary drivers. You know, a few minutes ago you heard Jesus say to his friends, Come to me, all you who are weary and are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And that first sentiment about releasing our burdens is among the most treasured sayings of Jesus. Receiving those words can be like getting a cool drink of water, life-saving water for someone dying of thirst. I know I have found that so found that so a time or two myself. But we tend to ignore the phrase, the next phrase, that invites us to take on his yoke. We're not entirely certain that we like the sound of that. It sounds contradictory. Our rest will be found in taking on a yoke? What are we talking about here? Here's the thing. All of us are carrying a lot of burdens. You have your own version of the list. You're carrying a lot of stuff. Among the stuff we're carrying is why am I not as happy as I want to be? Why can't I have what I want? Why am I missing out? But that's just part of the burdens we're carrying. And you hear you hear Jesus saying, well, set those down because that isn't the point of it. Never has been. Set all of that down and take on what I'm offering. But what is he offering then? We could spend some time thinking about that, but I would tell you right off that it has something to do with our soul. It has to do with soul work. 
what we think really matters most of all when all is said and done. It takes us to that place when we lay our burdens down. When we lay them down, when we rid ourselves of what's crushing us, we are able to take on something new. We can't take on the something new until we lay down the old. Simple mathematical equation, really. That's the gift that's implied here. That's the gift and the grace. So here at the end comes an invitation to set down the burden of your pursuit. Let it go. Here's another truth. Can't let this go because it's important. You are very attached to your burdens. You have like steel titanium cords attached to the burdens that you carry. You think, in part, they define you. In part. Sometimes, even if you want to let go of it, you find you can't. And it's because of that steel titanium that's locked into your heart in a way. Here's, here's what you do. When you discover you want to do something like lay your burden down and cannot, remember how Paul said he wants to do the thing he wants? He doesn't do the thing he wants. You heard that earlier. I, I don't do the thing that I want to do. I just do the thing I don't want to do. What he basically does there in that passage is to say, thank God I have a relationship with Jesus Christ because what I cannot do for myself Christ can do for me and this is my offer to you today as you think about this if in laying down your burden you find you cannot then the next prayer is God what I cannot do for myself please do for me and if you offer that sincerely if that is your heart's desire I guarantee that not instantaneously but over time you will find your burden being taken away And as that burden is being taken away, you are given an opportunity to take on something brand spanking new that will give you life and health and a great flourishing. What I think is doing that, you will find your real happiness.